Hello. Before we get going, I have a bit of housekeeping to do. Firstly, it's always great to hear from listeners. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at thehiddenpowerpodcast at gmail.com. Secondly, if you enjoyed Series 1, what would be really great would be a review on Apple Podcasts. I think you know the drill by now. They really help new listeners to find the show. Thirdly, this is an independent podcast, and for Series 2, we are opening up to sponsorship. There are, of course, several good reasons for organisations to associate themselves with podcasts, both altruistic and commercial. If you're curious to find out more, please email me at thehiddenpowerpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, this sudden special episode, The Doomed Career of Dominic Cummings, came about for the fairly obvious reason that the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson's chief advisor, some would say overlord, has left office, as we've all seen, carrying a box. Why is this of interest to us? Well, we're looking at a history graduate attempting something attempted by advisors in the past, civil service reform, without learning the lessons of history. And in fact, one of those advisors under the Blair government was none other than Ed himself. He wrote a report in 2004 called The Dead Generalist, which was adopted by Tony Blair, implemented with gusto by the civil service itself, but, as Ed spells out, a year or so later, it was as if it had never happened. However, if you're curious, the report is both readable and interesting, and I will put a link to it in the show notes. Probably the main reason it occurred to me to do this episode is that a lot of our pet subject systems thinking is about decentralization and setting up systems that can basically self-govern. This is the exact opposite of Cummings's way of approaching things, which is very much about command and control. And if you've been listening to our very first episode, you'll know that Ashby's law of requisite variety says, well, it says that Dominic Cummings's agenda of centralization was doomed from the outset. So, here we go. And uh, welcome to this special episode of uh, the Hidden Power podcast uh, with me, Philip Tottenham. Hello. And with my co-host, Ed Straw. Who... Hello. Yes. Hello. Hello. So how's it going? You're um, full, of, full of chat and ideas. And today we're on to this uh, strange beast that is Dominic Cummins. Yes, um, indeed. A mixed bag, I think is what I'd call him. Um, yeah. It's funny because he's, he he's sort of been depicted as being something of a demon by, by some people. And then you keep hearing from these journalists that call him Dom, uh, what, what, what a great guy he is and how he inspires such loyalty. So clearly, adequately intelligent people see quite a lot in Dominic Cummins. Absolutely. And I mean, in the sense that he is yet another, and I was sort of another, advisor, uh, you know, coming into a new government that, for better or worse, has a big program and wants to achieve some fairly radical and substantial change, which, you know, I would certainly go along with, is highly, highly necessary, has been highly, highly necessary for years, you know, sort of good for him. What he underestimated is 
two things, I think. One is the power of an individual person to fix the system. Mm. And no amount of intellectual muscle, of political power, of strong arming or whatever will fix the system through... Well, let's just pause that for a second. I mean... Where is he coming from, really, with all that? Because I suppose I first heard of him, I think I heard of him vaguely in the context of Michael Gove when somebody seemed to be taking a sledgehammer to the education system and closing libraries Mm. and that kind of thing. And then, obviously, he gained prominence in vote leave. But what what do we know about him? I mean, one interesting thing that that I am aware of is that he's a history graduate, which is ironic in terms of repeating the mistakes of the past. And uh, he and he doesn't doesn't like humanities either. Oh, really? Oh, he doesn't seem to like very much. And then he's but he's very enamored in technology. I sort of imagine him in his mind. He's seeing a sort of a James Bond or a Doctor Strangelove type control yeah, center. Well, yeah, I mean, and and this this control center, this and um, which I've never seen, but but people have talked about where all the data is coming into the center. I mean, it is one of these mythical things. But the only person and the only circumstance that I'm aware where that actually happened and actually worked was Stafford Beer, I mean the godfather of systems thinking, Mm. who in the times of Allende, who was the democratically elected communist president of Chile, and really himself, I suppose as well, was something of a a technocrat. So Um, what's this guy's name? I didn't quite catch it. uh, Allende, A-double-L-E-N-D-E. He set up really the first uh, systemic running of government with a control centre. But the data that was coming in was coming in over fax machines and telex machines and so on, but was being assembled and pulled together in a systemic way in order to manage some aspects of the system of government. I think people get carried away with their ability to control everything from the center. I mean, you've got to have a big ego. Well, you've probably got to have a big ego just to get into politics, let alone to do the sort of job he did and the sort of job that ministers, prime ministers do. But these big egos lead to these thoughts that you can control everything from the center. And of course, Usually the need, the psychological need amongst politicians is that they need the power, the personal power. Mm. So this notion that suddenly, you know, they've got hold of all of these levers and can now pull them and get people, you know, hundreds of miles. Again, just to, to rewind to your experience of that, I mean, you, you, you must have seen that to some extent with the Blair government in terms of oh. being at the centre and, and seeing that sort of... Um, creeping need just for a little bit more power just to be able to to control and i suppose yeah. we see that with obama as well actually to some extent with the use of the uh, executive yes i mean it, all of them are likely to head in that direction that's the system our system attracts those sorts of people so they're all desperate for power to be chair to them i mean you know there's blair and a lot of people would have said yeah good program needed to uh, sort out quite a lot redress some, some inequality balances, which got pretty excessive under uh, uh, Mrs. Thatcher. And he got into power. And within six months, he'd worked out that 
you know, he's got all these levers, but nothing's happening. Mm. Well, I remember really, we discussed that in, in episode one, didn't we? Was, yeah, um, yeah. This, in a way, was me seeing Dominic coming through the eyes of deja vu. Mm. Uh, that led me to producing a report called The Dead Generalist for Demos, which was about civil service reform. That led to that going to Jonathan Powell, Blair's chief of staff, Jonathan Powell taking and me briefing him, Powell briefing Blair, Blair telling the head of the civil service, right, we need some change. Civil service coming up with the professionalization, standardization of the civil service. Brum, off we go. It's rolled out, as they say, beware the term roll out, because you know, it'll sort of it'll be a bit like um, spilling a bowl of treacle, really. So there we are, job done. A year later, two years later, if you'd returned, you would never have known that I'd written a report that Blair had said, get on with it, that the head of the civil service had, you know, so the whole generalist model was still intact. And this is the crucial lesson, so a lesson of any attempt at civil service reform, is that it has a remarkable capacity to roll with um, uh, the pressures to, to say, well, to say, yes, minister, of mm. course, minister, and to then wait for the political tide to move on, events, dear boy, to take over, you know, the, the usual stuff to happen, and the whole thing just fizzles out. The other big mistake that Cummings made was to think that you can reform the civil service in isolation from the rest of the, civil, uh, the rest of uh, the system of government, particularly in isolation from reforming the politicians. And just the whole to, to rewind a little bit, though, so just can we say briefly what the, I mean? The problem with the civil service is, in a sense, that it has this control that somehow that there's there's a system that everyone's kind of. Some, somewhat um, enfranchised and, you know, comfortable and they don't want to change. Is that the kind of the main thing? And also the fact that these lines of communication are somewhat broken. Mm. I think what you said about Blair was they went to the wrong place or people, things yeah. got mixed up in this yeah. process yeah. where officials didn't quite seem to yeah. perform the way they were it, expected to. Gosh, I mean, there's so much in there. So, okay, if we start with the, if you like, traditions of understanding of... Yeah the civil service, which are classically the humanities. You can debate as to whether being a lawyer is a humanity. It's got rather more discipline to it because, I mean, precisely because it's about precise laws. But anyway, it's dominated by humanities and lawyers. I mean, you know, you and I spend an awful lot of time talking about Schopenhauer. Philosophy is wonderful, important. History is wonderful, important. All of these things are wonderful, important. However, if you have one tradition of understanding dominating, in this case, government, you will get a very narrow perspective. So scientists, engineers, management theorists, all sorts of technologists, uh, technical people, these are not traditions that are there. And you could see in the way in which government, and and we're not just talking about the civil service, this tradition of understanding dominates also the politicians, and it dominates all of the media. So you watch them over, in the early days of COVID, trying to interpret statistics, mm-hmm. trying to understand the difference between absolutely hard science and then emerging science in the terms of modelling. 
Indeed. And then actually there's hell of a don't know space. Well, the hell of a don't know space, particularly if you can't reduce it, that's where politics comes in. It's called judgment and trade-offs. But if you watch them just stumble around their grasp of statistics, they got better because they had to, but it was appalling and, and led to some of the cock-ups that went on. Anyway, so you've got a single tradition of understanding. You've got still cashmere terms and conditions. Mm. And if you want to know whether an organisation is going to change, look at the pension. The pension scheme, uh, yes. We talked about that, that in, in the second yeah, episode, didn't we? Yeah, so, you know, the better the pension scheme, well, yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> this is this is the, the the problem is that the traditions of understanding, in a sense, are sort of bound and gagged by the pension scheme. Well, they're, that, they're, they're sort that, of kept. Yeah, but let's go on because the civil service is very used to running the show. I'm not sure whether I said this, but again, stop me if I did. But someone, when I was writing my first book, very senior, said, "What you need for something to happen." in a government department that actually gets put into practice is a minister that knows his mind or her mind, a sound project manager, and the department agrees with it. Mm. Now, at that point, you're going, hang on, I thought this civil service was supposed to be impartial. Um, Don't you believe it? There will be a departmental view about just about everything. So the civil service does, in some respects, think it has a duty to run the country and does run the country. Now, don't hack them off at this point, because part of that comes about because we have this curious political system where minority ideologies and crumbs, we've got a classic minority ideology in power at present, can lever the whole system through first past the post, then through the way in which uh, political parties are disciplined in parliament can lever this to a minority rule, and I'm talking time minority. Mm. The civil service is actually a bulwark against that distortion of power. I've had senior civil servants say to me, actually, it's terribly important we screw it up Mm. in order to prevent all sorts of foul and deleterious things happening. So you've got all of this running, and I think you're starting to see, well, if you want to reform the civil service, you can't do it in isolation. Mm. I'm not sure if I mentioned, but one of the people we were talking about just now, probably the leading constitutional historian in the law, Peter Hennessy, a, a, a person I've known and value for years. I was talking to him about the previous attempt at civil service reform, previous to Dominic Covens, this was by Francis Maud in 2012. Same thing, Cameron comes in, yeah, the same, I mean, very similar, yeah, we need to do this, that, and the other. But there, this, that, and the other, as with Dominic Cummings, this, that, and the other, meant that more and more power would accumulate to the executive, to the government. Because mm. the government thinks if it has total power, then it can be... Gets things done, yes. Yeah. Big, big, big Hennessy's sitting there, I'm sitting there, going, no, 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 no. In our system, there's far too much power in the executive, far too little power in the various vetting and checks and balances. What was Dominic Cummings seeing exactly? Like he was, he was seeing these problems you've outlined. And yeah. in a sense, also perhaps seeing that, I mean, I don't know if his 
agenda was simply to atomize central government or if it was to sort of to atomize the civil service. But he seems to have wanted to push through this bulwark. Michael Gove, and I don't know whether Dominic Cummings had written his speech, but Gove set out, if you like, the government's agenda for reform at a speech in Ditchley. I think it was in June of this year. Okay, here we go. Governments need to be rigorous and fearless in the evaluation of policy and projects and open up data to external challenge. Precious few government-sponsored or owned sources of reliable evidence on what works. Create space for the experimental. Acknowledge we won't always achieve perfection on day one. My God, it would be uh, good if they achieved perfection at any point. But but the point that goes making, I mean, he could be a systems thinker. But you then say, okay, fine. Yeah, absolutely. We need feedback. We need data, evidence, external challenge. We, we need this to be grounded in reality. But you know damn well that, that as soon as uh, a policy um, is struggling to work, the ministers of the day won't be going, okay, let's have a really good look at this and open it all up and, and see what we can find. They'll be defending it like mad. Mm-hmm. They'll be, you know, rhetorically massaging statistics. They'll be self-scoring and saying, there you are, yeah, yeah. Proved right. So unless you put what Gove is saying into the institutions far away from the executive so they can't fiddle the books, then none of this was going to happen. But I think Cummings, in his intent, was entirely right, but actually didn't have a clue as to how to actually get that into practice. His intent seems to have included this famous despising of of politicians in Westminster. I mean, he clearly saw the the whole sort of Westminster bubble as, Hmm. um, well, pointless, I suppose. And it's interesting hearing Andy Burnham, who's sort of moved from being in Westminster to, to being mayor of Manchester, saying that the precise reason he moved was that he felt that, that there was something sick and wrong with Westminster and he could get more done within, as you would say, you know, within that limited space of, in this case, Manchester. Yeah. So it's clear that there's a critical mass emerging of, of people who are, who are looking to, to change the system. And yeah. in a sense, Dominic Cummins was a part of that, but kind of going the wrong way. He was a part of it. He also made the mistake of thinking that he had all the answers. But you have to step right back and go, okay, how do you arrange this system in the round so it will work? And we've talked before about the need for the feedback branch on results and outcomes. I mean, that's what Go should have been talking about. When mm. You know, we need to know what's going on. The well, this is an interesting France. point, Ed, because I, I kind of wonder, you know, are there any particular circumstances that you saw things going wrong that you thought, well, instead of doing what he did, he could have taken a more systemic view? Or do you think it's more in his overall project of dragging things into this sort of mythical control centre? The entire project was doomed from the outset. Yeah, I mean, you know, there he is. They're all terribly excited. I mean, this always happens. You, you know, they, they've worked for years and years to, to get their hands on the levers of power. There they are. They've got a pass into 10 Downing Street. And very rapidly what happens is that they become insulated, in effect. Uh, they, they become a closer and closer group within 10 Downing Street. They become disconnected. But they're in a hurry. Understandably, you know, the pressure's there. The 24-hour the news cycle is there. The public does want something to happen. 
albeit not necessarily what what does happen. So they're really going hell for leather. Whereas, you know, if you're going to change this system, I think you can make some good progress in engaging people in the problem, in defining the problem, in talking about solutions to that problem, and coming up with a constitution, which is what we need at the end of the day, a, a proper one. And then you could get that into a referendum, so it's a meta law. But you, you know, it's probably going to take a whole term of parliament to do that. Mm. Um, my view is that you set that program out, that's what you're going to do. But for everything else, you stop farting around. Mm. So you stop the endless zigzag with the health service and we'll twiddle that and we'll change that and we'll turn left and then we'll turn right. Ditto with schools. You maintain the systems as they are. You obviously have to respond to things like, well, the pandemic. But again, I mean, it's this, it's this thing of, of, as you say, there's an end state fallacy in believing that you can somehow yeah. bring, you know, say the word and bring about perfection. As yeah. opposed, you know, it's the wrong goal from what you're saying. It's, it's about bringing about improvement in general. So, yeah, it's so really it, the, what the goal is, isn't it? And yeah, then, exactly. So, so what's the purpose? Well, let's say the purpose is to provide really good vocational education and training from 15 onwards. So you then say, well, how do we set in motion and set up the system that will bring about those results. This is exactly what Julian was saying, Julian Corner in the earlier mm. episode three, I think it was, about the way they work, that government should be enabling and authorising. So forget policy making. I mean, it's a lost cause anyway. And, and, and forget, just to, um, to, to remind listeners that Julian kind of knows that uh, as someone who's worked in, in the... Oh, in the Home Office, yeah. In the yes, home yeah. Office. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, he's seen, he's, he's, he's poacher turned gamekeeper, isn't he? Or, or mm. the other way around. Or the other. <laughs> <laughs> but he's saying, look, government stopped. I mean, how, and Eileen Munro, you know, about child protection. You need to get down to children in Manchester, for the sake of argument, and specific ones and their protection. Now, you cannot do that from the centre. So forget it. So what system is it that would allow you to improve child protection for children in Manchester? And it sure as hell isn't some control centre in the middle of Whitehall. No. Um, because it's too far removed. Well, exactly. And I suppose that to wrap up on Cummings and the lust for control, I suppose from what Michael Gove was saying, if he's being uh, genuine, which I sort of wonder based on uh, one's experience of, of him as education secretary, but if what he's saying is well-intentioned, actually he is attempting to bring a, a systemic approach into government. But without Cummings, does that weaken Gove? Do you think that's reality? or has that kind of I, I suspect that you know, this attempt at civil service reform will go the way of the four now previous attempts, Cameron, Blair, Thatcher, and then right back to the 60s, Fulton under Wilson. Tried, tried again, pretty much uh, similar recipes, getting uh, increasingly sophisticated. They've all failed, so I think it will die. 
And of course, the civil service has, has tremendous allies, and it's got a lot of allies in the House of Lords. It's got a lot of allies in the media. So a lot of the spin against Cummings, some deserved, some not deserved, would be because they would have been briefing against mm -hmm. him in order to stop the reforms. They represent a constituency, really, because they, oh, they, oh, they run into yeah. hundreds of thousands, don't they? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a totally undemocratic institution that wields in practice a lot of power without any democratic control. It's a master unto itself. Go back and read my report. I couldn't agree more. There's a lot wrong with the civil service, but don't try and pick it off on its own because that's the wrong way of going about it. And there's, a, there's a, so much wrong in the rest of government that sort of picking on, as it were, the civil service, which is an obvious place to pick because, I mean, there is some crassness there. But again, um, this is where your, your um, post-crash analysis comes in, because really what you're looking at there is this sort of a blame game, which is based on fear. It's based on people who are worried about being blamed themselves. So they need to find someone else to, to publicly stab, to kind yeah. of put the issue away, don't, don't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the civil servants really don't like personal responsibility. So they socialise it across the institution. They hide behind as many processes and pieces of bureaucracy as they can. So it's not me, the civil servant, that has made that judgment or made that mistake. So that's strangely reminiscent of that film, The Big Short, where you have the same thing in, in, in banking, mm. where everyone's mm. just looking at their own sort of trough and not really seeing, there's just these few characters seeing the, the big picture. Yeah, and that's very interesting you say that, Philip, because it's the job of the system to shove the big picture right into people's faces mm. and say, look, this is reality. Your law may have been very well-intentioned, but it's not working. So scrap it and come up with something different. And that would then mean that we start to improve government. But yeah, I mean, Dominic Cummings is a sort of symbol, really. He's, well, that's um, what I thought with these uh, really kind of relatively good intentions in some respects, not yeah. all good intentions. I think he was had this uh, anarchist streak, which perhaps was sort of unhealthy. Yeah. I think he, he ended up being a symbol of what not to do, didn't he? Yeah. And it was entirely predictable. You know, when he came in, I thought, yeah, maybe it'll last two years. The two that were with May, who sort of adopted a similar management by fear style. Oh, uh, Nick Timothy, is it? And... Yeah. And um, was it Hill? So you've got those. And people get seriously pissed off with being harangued and attacked mm. and marginalised. Well, it's like that time. program, isn't it? The, the, uh, the Thick of It. The Thick of It. And yes, Minister, you may think these are comedies. They're not. They're reality TV. This is pretty much how it really, really does work. If you don't think that, well, just to get the opportunity to be a fly on the wall in the ministerial office. That's, yeah, but, that's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of like the office writ large. But, um, well, that's a good place yeah. to finish up. I think we can link some episodes of The Thick of It and Yes Minister in, in the show notes um, for, for people to, yes. to, to yes. enjoy. <laughs> and, uh, Ed, thanks very much. That was a great, great chat. And good well, to, to tease out the ins and outs of what happened with uh, with this strange guy. Yeah, strange beast, yeah, no, no, exactly.
So there you are, Dominic Cummings. Some great and some terrible ideas. Thanks, as always, for taking the time to listen to this unexpected episode. And along with such joys as links to Yes Minister and The Thick of It, I will post links to Ed's 2004 report, The Dead Generalist, and some information on Stafford Beer mentioned at the outset. Of course, at this point, you might just have your phone in your hands and be thinking of helping new listeners find the show by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. If you are, thank you. And on a final note, before Series 2, Preflight Checklist gets going next year, we may well do another special episode. So, see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.